You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up... We have a mixed picture on U.S. jobs and non-farm payrolls, plus the ISM. We'll get the read on the state of the labor market and how AI will impact hiring in 2024. Plus, a teardown of Huawei's newest laptop reveals its chips are powered by TSMC, throwing cold water on chatter about another technological breakthrough for the sanctioned company. Details ahead. And an AI startup taking on Google gets fresh funding with backers including Jeff Bezos and NVIDIA. We sit down with the CEO of Perplexity AI as the company reaches a half a billion dollar valuation just two years since its inception. And what is the read on the resilience of a consumer? What is the read on the resilience of the labour market? Very muddy picture today. Strong payrolls report. The non-farm payrolls closing out 2023, just showing that the US adding 216,000 jobs in the month of December and the jobless rate remaining unchanged. But then comes the US service sector number. And that shows stagnation at the end of 2023 in the gauge of employment. And indeed, that particular signal was its biggest contraction in more than three years. Glad that we've got some nuance to be put to it with Corey Stahl, an economist for the Indeed Hiring Lab. And just wade through these waters right now. What are you seeing at your hiring lab in terms of the resilience of the U.S. labor market? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing right now in our postings data from Indeed is very much what we've seen in the overall labor market picture from these government numbers, which is we've seen, you know, kind of a decline in job postings throughout the year, but still a much stronger labor market uh, than we had pre-pandemic, you know. So things have softened over the last year, but we're still above where we were in early 2020. Uh, Corey, zeroing in on the, the sort of technology sector's perspective, it's actually interesting to look at where those gains were. They were not in the technology sector. To me, it seems like a lot of public sector jobs, right, education, health services, government, and to some extent, leisure and hospitality. Give us the tech story if there is one. 
Yeah, so I mean, I think the tech story is a big part of the story in the labor market, especially as we look back to kind of that pandemic baseline. You know, what we saw was as the pandemic hit, a lot of job postings fell together across all sectors. Then we started seeing those sectors kind of all come up together. And I think 2023 really showed us it was a year of divergence where we started seeing more strength in these kind of in-person type sectors. You know, healthcare has been kind of that perennial powerhouse in terms of adding jobs. Jobs, but we definitely saw some kind of weakening demand in tech and some of these other areas. And so I think ultimately the tech story here is that, you know, tech has taken a little more of a brunt in terms of a drop in job postings over the last year. Um, but really, that's been a part of this larger divergence. So we're adding jobs overall at the top level once we roll it up. But once you kind of look under the hood, you can see kind of some of these differences that are beginning to emerge between different sectors. What's interesting is there's divergence within the tech space, too. I'm pretty sure that anything with an AI name within it has been hiring pretty well and other areas a little bit more bleak. Just start there. Rather than how AI is affecting the rest of the labor market, let's just show how is it affecting tech jobs that are on offer, Corey? Yeah, I mean, so ultimately, you know, we have seen a pretty dramatic increase in the number of job postings asking for, you know, these types of generative AI type of skills, you know, really the new, you know, the chat GPTs, the generative AI skills, obviously AI kind of in a broader sense of self-driving cars and all those technologies have been something we've discussed for the past couple of years. But what's interesting to note is that in the trend of generative AI in particular, you know, last year there were basically no jobs talking about these technologies. And what we've seen is that in the last year, there's been a dramatic increase. You know, if you look at the graph for job postings with the uh, generative AI terms being asked or skills being asked by employers, it's basically a hockey stick. It was zero last year. And this is the first time we're kind of sharing this data publicly with the newest data from December. But at the end of December, there was about 0.05 or point zero eight five percent of jobs that were mentioning generative AI. So still overall a pretty small portion of the labor market, but when you think about what it means to go from zero to almost a tenth of a percent in a year, that's starting to really show some momentum for these types of jobs. Corey, the other thing in the domain of technology that, that I've been thinking about is participation in the economy. Mm -hmm. And particularly the age of workers um, I think back to when we talked about the union efforts with regards to the automakers and EV and the concern down the line is that there is a whole generation of workforce that will retire in the coming years and there are people sitting on the sidelines, what you would call prime age workers. Yeah, and that's a great point. I think that's one of the kind of key points that we saw this morning in the jobs report is that, yes, it was a jobs report where the number of jobs we added really surpassed kind of a lot of expectations, which was kind of a fitful, you know, kind of wrap up of what we saw in 2023. But I think what was different from what we saw in the rest of 2023 is that in the last couple months, we have seen the labor force participation rate, especially among those prime age workers, start to drop off. You know, and you talk about, you know, kind of the, the demographic headwinds as we have fewer workers aging in and many more workers aging out, you know, the U.S. is really facing kind of an uphill battle in terms of making sure the labor supply is there because adding the jobs and having the job openings is one thing, but finding the people to fill those jobs, you know, is, is a vital part of actually making sure that the economy and the labor market continues to be robust. 
uh, Corey Stahl of Indeed Hiring Lab, just terrific data, granular data about the technology sector and jobs. Thank you. Let's keep the conversation going. As the labour market shows some signs of cooling, how is AI being imp implemented, particularly in the financial services industry, to help consumers and workers build a safety net? Joining us now is Liz Davidson, founder and CEO of Financial Finesse, which offers personalised financial coaching, both live and AI-powered, to millions of employees. The, the, the jobs data always gives us an opportunity to ask about what is really happening right now in the way that AI is impacting our daily tasks, but also, as our last guest pointed out, hiring. And I just ask you in the first instance to kind of give us a read of where you think that is. Yeah, it's very interesting, those hiring numbers that were just um, articulated. What we're seeing is a whole lot of talk in the financial services industry about AI and you know things that will be happening in the future. Um, but it's still very, very early, and there's a lot of concerns about compliance and how do you make this safe for consumers? Because we all know open AI can really be problematic. We work in the financial coaching industry, providing financial coaching as an employee benefit and have managed to leverage AI using vetted content, only vetted content, from on-staff certified financial planners so that any questions that are asked in this virtual coaching process, where it asks you questions and you ask it questions, any of that all points to our content and it's completely safe and contained. And I think that's really you know, one of the biggest hurdles that financial services companies need to get through is how do you leverage this powerful tool but make sure it's safe? And also, how do you ensure you're building yourself security, financial independence, particularly when you do start to see perhaps the overall jobs market soften a little bit, but you've actually managed to secure a bit of a wage increase and you're wanting to ensure that you've got your you know, under all, overall safety net lined up, Liz. You use something called the artificial intelligence motivating employees everywhere. Amy, basically, is how you yeah. call it. Talk yes. to us about how AI has really managed to either reduce the amount of financial advisors one needs to get the right information at the right time. How are employees engaging with this more now than ever because they feel a little bit less secure than perhaps last year? Absolutely. Um, and the great thing about AI is it allows what we call mass personalization. So you can reach an incredibly large number of people, but in an incredibly personalized way. And we always say people's favorite financial topic is themselves. It's not asset allocation, it's not stock options, it's themselves and their families and their financial security. So having the ability to have a virtual financial coach that can walk you through these things, that you can ask questions to and get do, you know, vetted answers that you are fully confident are in your best interest, free of any conflicts of interest, is tremendous. Now, the interesting question is, how does this work with an advisor? And I would say, you know, in our model, we have seen that both leverage each other. Our yeah. financial coaches have trained the AI, but the AI is also helping them become better financial coaches, both in terms of understanding mass trends aggregated trends, but also individuals, you know, profiles. So if we've become more efficient, we've become able to help more people. AI has an exponential power that is tremendous. 
for context, last year we had 1.6 million interactions. I'm sorry, 2022, 1.6 million interactions. 2023, 8.3 million interactions. Mm -hmm. There is such an incredible snowball effect when you use this technology right, especially in tandem with human financial coaches or advisors. Nestle, General Mills, NFL Players Association, some of those that you served as Davidson, Financial Finesse founder, we thank you and CEO. Meanwhile, we want to turn our attention to another story that we were following today. Tesla will deploy an over-the-air software fix to more than 1.6 million vehicles in China, virtually every car it's ever sold there. That's, of course, amid heightened risk, potentially with its autopilot functions. And the move mirrors that recall, as sometimes they're called, 2 million vehicles in the US last month then. Sticking with Tesla in China, the other big story, the electric vehicle maker has been overtaken by China's BYD as the world's top-selling electric car maker. Bloomberg's weekly doc takes a look at how that happened. It likes to describe itself as... The biggest car brand you've never heard of. Now, China's BYD has overtaken Tesla as the world's largest seller of electric vehicles. Its success is a fruit of long-term strategic thinking on the part of BYD itself and the Chinese government. We've arguably never seen anything like this in terms of you know, the amount of support uh, that, that China has extended to automakers specifically pertaining to EVs. Most of BYD's cars are simply a lot cheaper than Tesla's. They have very cheap models starting from 10,000 US dollars. The most important factor is that BYD is the only automaker that produces all of its batteries in-house. Making its own batteries and other components helps it reduce a lot of costs. All of this is setting China up to be the dominant global player in the transportation of the future. Electric vehicles, a business that could be worth $8.8 trillion by the end of a decade. Uh, highly recommend. Check out the full doc. Eight minutes packed with data and analysis. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, a teardown of Huawei's newest laptop shows it's powered by a chip made in Taiwan, quashing talks of another mainland Chinese technological breakthrough. we got those details next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now, it's a new teardown video by Tech Insights. New findings showing that Huawei's latest laptop is actually run on a chip made by Taiwan Semiconductor, TSMC. It throws cold water on, well, that, all that talk that was happening about another big Chinese advance in technology amid this U.S.-China tech war. And we're going to break it down with you for a moment because this was right. commissioned by Bloomberg to do this teardown because suddenly there was this talk that maybe an even more advanced chip than had been thought was exactly. inside this laptop. But wah, wah, not the case. So Tech Insights is the same firm that Bloomberg News partnered with on the teardown of the Huawei Mate 60 or Mate 60 Pro smartphone. And I would look at it paradoxically first. If they had found that that 5 nanometer processor in the laptop had indeed been made by SMIC, China's mainland domestic uh, chip fab, that would be huge news mm. because it would demonstrate some technological progress. But it wasn't. It was indeed made by TSMC, a five nanometer node used to make the processor. But here's the thing. It was made that generation back in 2020. Yeah. So it's not even at the cutting edge and it wasn't made in China. And also, what does it show about what Huawei's been up to since 2020? 2019 was when, of course, it was first put on the entities list. 2020 yes. is when TSMC was no longer allowed to basically sell to it. But they were just stockpiling, were they, to be able to get this chip? Yeah, it, there is evidence that they had been stockpiling uh, Chips that at the time were at the cutting edge and mm. now are not. The latest generation of Node is 3 nanometer, right, that is uh, used by TSMC and prevalent in many uh, consumer electronics, for example, those made by Apple. What we found in the teardown of the Huawei laptop was a 5 nanometer produced processor, uh, the Kirin 906C. So it's two generations removed from the latest, but one generation ahead of what we think China had access mm. to, even though it's still dated. I love these teardowns. They're so useful. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about it as well is that you lift the lid, you get the analysis from yeah. the experts, you answer a lot of questions about where we're at in this war, tech war and supply chain. And actually, what sunk the share prices of some of those that were traded over in China. The anticipation had perhaps run up on SMIC and actually it pulled back a little bit. Time now for Talking Tech. First up, Foxconn warned of its fourth consecutive decline in quarterly sales. Now, the Apple partner reported a steep 27% drop in December sales. Now sees sales falling in the current period as well. It's adding to concerns about all that slowing demand we're talking of for the latest iPhone. And as Twitch tries to take on the likes of TikTok, its new discovery feed for short videos, well, it's raising concerns for kids' safety. Now, an analysis by Bloomberg News of nearly 1,100 clips on Twitch found that at least 83 of the short videos contain sexualized content involving children. Once Bloomberg alerted the company, Twitch removed that prohibited content. 
plus American Tower. Well, it's agreed to sell its operations in India to an affiliate of Brookfield Asset Management. It's in a deal worth about $2.5 billion in the US networking company. Now, the deal is expected to close in the second half of this year. That's according to the company. Ed? Yeah, another news story we're tracking in the world of VC. KOTU closing its European office in London two years after they opened it. The move is part of a wider strategy overhaul to adjust to a downturn in the technology market. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Mark Bergen out there in London. I mean, the stated reason is streamlining the investment approach in Europe. But what else do we know about what was a short-lived stay in London? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different factors. One, say, is unique to the fund. So KOTU has been going through this big adjustment, and uh, they've lost a, a managing partner in the last months. They had a write-down of about 30% that we reported in November uh, on their portfolio. Some of that was because they marked down uh, some of their startup holdings as, as much as 90%. Uh, I think this is something a lot of firms are doing. They've raised a new fund with this discount, uh, this kind of rare, unusual move where they're, they're letting the investors in their fund get in to start up at a discounted rate in exchange for cutting some of the fees. And so they're making some different strategic changes. I think there's also a bigger trend, which is, you know, they're not the first VC fund in the past six months to pull out. Omer's Ventures, uh, the Canadian pension fund, left Europe. Uh, we reported that this summer. There's not a lot of deal activity in uh, anything but the early stage. So these later stage startups growth, it's been pretty quiet here. Yeah. And so maybe they're reading the tea leaves on that going forward. But why then has IVP, has Andreessen Horowitz just set up shop in London? What are they seeing that perhaps, well, KOTU isn't? Uh, it's a really good question. I think, I mean, Andreessen came here, uh, at least they announced it as focused on crypto. Um, as far as I know, they haven't made uh, other investments, um, but they have, you know, they just, we reported earlier, they, they came in this big round uh, for Mistral, the, the, the French mm. company uh, that was out of their, their California team. But, you know, they will, and KOTU says the same thing. They're going to continue to invest in Europe, out of California, out of New York. Um, I think you know, different funds have a different approach about whether or not it's worthwhile to have people on the ground where they can go and meet the startups in, in Paris, uh, in Scandinavia, in Eastern Europe, where you know the UiPath, which was a co-to investment, uh, people here talk a lot about the value of, of being on the ground. Um, that being said, this is obviously some, some firms and, and maybe their LPs think it's, it's worthwhile uh, not to be. They were early backer in Spotify and UiPath. We'll see how much they can continue to get in on some of these European startups, even though perhaps it's a bit of a tougher time for these crossover funds in particular. Mark Bergen, brilliant and really well-read story. We thank you so much for all the lives, comings and goings in VC and Europe. Meanwhile, let's go into this conversation with Catherine Dowling, General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Bitwise Asset Management. And you are gazing into those SEC stars as well. And ultimately, it is important as to whether or not we get the yay or nay by January the 10th. Are you more on the probabilities really stacked towards a yes? I am on record with your colleagues saying that uh, my prediction was mid-January and I have not changed my opinion on that. I can't speak to our specific conversations with the SEC, but if you look at what's happening out in the, in the public, yes, there's a lot of fake news and some fake bumps, mm -hmm. but if you look at the actual documents being filed, you're seeing that there are fewer and fewer blanks in those documents and you can, you can look at those documents and see what the basics of the conversations are looking 
looking like with the SEC. The SEC is, is doing their job. They're working hard. They are working behind the scenes and did over the holidays to make sure that the what's known as the S-1 side of the house, the disclosure document, has all the investor protections in it, all the disclosures. They've been pushing on the issuers as they should to make sure that all of the information is set forth in that document, that it's very clear. And on the other side of the house, we have the 19 before document, the exchange document, and you'll see that there's information that um, is being matched up between those two documents. So you can see that progression in the public record as issuers work to work on both sides of those documents, and the SEC also works to communicate with the various issuers behind the scenes. And all of this is going to be a huge win for investors when it does come out of the gates. As one of the applicants for Spot Bitcoin ETF, where, what is the upside here? What sort of fund flows are you anticipating? We got a, a general anticipation of one to two billion, for example, on the first week that it actually is able to be traded. Do you abide by that sort of level of increase and in interest coming from institutions and retail on that first week? Yes, Caroline, we expect a big uptick out of the gates. And um, part of that, we look at the history of gold ETFs. We look at um, the Bitcoin futures ETFs. So we do have historic uh, issues to look at to see what we can expect. Um, and also with with this issuance, the expectation, if all goes as we believe it should be going, uh, we'll have a number of issuers come out of the gates at the same time. So you will have a number of options for in, for investors. And from a demand standpoint, um, you know, Bitwise has just put out our research survey with financial advisors, and a number of financial advisors have been waiting for this moment to get into Bitcoin for their clients because it's just a much easier and more transparent way for them to provide Bitcoin exposure to their clients. Uh, Catherine, as Caroline pointed out, Bitwise Asset Management is an applicant. You've applied for an ETF, but I'm really interested in your role as general counsel and chief compliance officer and, and what you're doing every day. You know, you said you stuck by your mid-January call, but there's only one party in all of this that actually knows, and that's the SEC. Yes, the SEC is definitely the Zeus in this operation. Um, but we can, what we can also see is looking at history. The SEC doesn't want, they don't want hunger games here. They want what's best for the investor, which is a number of issuers coming out. So as you see from the public record, they're speaking with all of us. And to your question of what you know we do or what I do in my role, yeah. we're speaking to them, we're answering their questions, we're working with them. And what I can tell you is that they have been very dedicated to making sure that one, if you if you kind of go back a little bit in time, first it started as this kind of academic conversation, ivory tower, you know, what is this product, how does it work? And then we moved into, you know, a higher energy, a little more intensity about, okay, let's look at the nuts and bolts. How does this really work? Who's holding the Bitcoin? Where's the risk? Where's the cash coming in? Who are the different players? And, you know, that's why you're seeing in the public record a concern with the SEC of let's list the APs. Let's get the people out here the entities, the parties who are going to be engaging in this process so that there is an understanding and so we can have a fulsome disclosure about how this product works. So you saw that progression with the SEC engaging on understanding how this product works. And I think they've been pretty dedicated to making sure they understand that because they have to first understand it to make sure that the 
correct disclosures are in the prospectus. So that's what's going on behind the scenes, but you can see that reflected in the amended S1s that you're seeing that everybody's following. You can see the fewer blanks happening, and you can yeah. actually track and see the additional disclosures that are being added as this process goes forward and progresses. A uh, very simple question in the 30 seconds we've got. Is sure. the SC, SEC and the United States a good regulator, a, a, a competent regulator for this field? They are, absolutely. I think, I know we've had a lot of dialogue about, obviously, other countries have gotten this product out in advance. But in our country, we have a number of regulators, and they're looking at what they should be looking at. Has this progressed more slowly than many of us would have liked? Yes. But at the end of the day, we're going to get a product that is better for investors. It's going to have the disclosures. It's going to have the information. They're going to have a more fulsome understanding of how this product works, and that's going to make everybody able to make a better decision if they want to include this as one of their investment choices. Catherine Dowling, General Counsel, Chief Compliance Officer over at Bitwise Asset Management. Thank you. Okay, as OpenAI is due to complete its tender offer, the company is also talking to dozens of publishers about striking deals to license their articles. This is the startup looks for content to train its artificial intelligence models. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Shireen Ghaffari for more. I've uh, been reading a lot about this in the press over weeks and months, the value of data, who they're talking to and who they're not. What do we know? So we know that they are speaking to dozens of publishers about significant deals, um, and this would be both to pay for these publishers to give data that will help OpenAI train its models, as well as to more prominently display these articles themselves and the output of what ChatGPT tells you. So while they're trying to navigate potential, well, future cases, of course, where they're being sued by the New York Times or trying to ensure that other publishers are getting on board. All of this to vindicate their business model, ultimately, that it is at a time when we know the company is, A, perhaps looking for new funding, but also completing on a tender offer where they're giving some liquidity to the actual employee base at the moment. How is that tender offer looking? That's correct. So as far as we know, the tender offer is still on. Um, it's set actually to close today. Um, remember, that was uh, basically an offer that allows employees to sell their shares in the company to investors. Um, so it's offering employees a chance to liquidate uh, the, the assets that they have in OpenAI. And uh, it was set for $86 billion, um, and it was extended a little bit in the chaos that ensued during the board ouster. Uh, so this is an extended deadline of a month. So what I heard is that you know the money's been wired. What needs to happen now, Caro, is OpenAI does a transfer of ownership for the shares and then issues new share certificates. So it seems like it's buttoned up. But as Shirin and I reported before the holidays, they're going to do a primary straight away yeah. at a more than $100 billion valuation. Can those guys just come on? You know, we all need a break at some point. Um, Caro. Yeah, interesting as to whether or not you've been selling out at a moment of a slightly lower valuation that you're about to see your current shareholding be numbered at. It's a fascinating, ongoing, continuing conversation that you and Sharon have been leading. We thank you so much, Sharon Gaffrey, to just take us through what's happening in the midst of a tender offer and new primary raise. Meanwhile, let's continue the conversation on like the secondary market activity a bit. Greg Martin's with us, co-founder and managing director at Rainmaker Securities, mid-market investment bank, broker dealer specializing in pre-IPO 
investing. And I mean, Ed just told us about the state of play where we are in terms of this tender offer, but the fact that also OpenAI might raise new funds. Just tell us about the extent of demand to get into this company, despite some of the internal turmoil. Well, great to see you again, and thank you for having me. You know, OpenAI has been one of the hottest, you know, companies certainly in the last year. I mean, its its previous tender was was uh, you know at 28 billion, and now it's 3x that. And as you mentioned, it, it may be going up in, even more in a primary round. Uh, we have seen you know almost unlimited demand for OpenAI this year, and of course, it's a pretty new phenomenon. I mean, the company just released ChatGPT in November of 2022. Um, so, I mean, its revenues have gone from zero to a billion six run rate reported, you know, at the end of 23, and I'm hearing they might finish 2024, you know, closer to five billion. So the growth in the company is immense, and the demand for stock in OpenAI is also immense, and we're seeing a ton of trading and, and interest on our platform today, and I think that's why you're seeing you know the valuation continue to go up even a month after a tender is about to close it's that trading active tense that i'm really interested in you know the tender is a transaction right and my understanding is it's very hard to get in on that tender but what struck me in the days prior to sam altman initially being dismissed by the board was how liquid the market was the secondaries market for an open ai shares and i just wondered if you could explain to us how that works yeah, well, I mean, just to be clear, the, the week that Sam Altman, uh, you know, decided to leave and then come back again was definitely a, 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 a near-term wet blanket. I don't know that he decided of... to leave, Greg. I think he was fired, <laughs> but please keep going. <laughs> that may be, but um, it was a wet blanket for a moment in time. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, worried investors, uh, you know, and of course, I think a lot of that has been solidified. I think there's a, a feeling of stability now. The team is back in place. Um, but, you know, trading is interesting because... Because, as I said, there's actually consummating a trade is challenging. I mean, there's there are a lot of bids. There's people who want to be owners of OpenAI. Obviously, it's 49% owned by Microsoft. It has a funky corporate structure, you know, with the combination of a not-for-profit. And so I think people are setting up entities, you know, special purpose vehicles, et cetera, by which they hold the shares. And they're actually sometimes selling units in those special purpose vehicles versus actually trading the shares in some cases. Clearly, the, the tender offer is actually a direct trade of shares. But people are trying to find all kinds of innovative ways to actually trade the shares. And we're facilitating a lot of that at Rainmaker. Is there any other company that can compare? I mean, there are some other very heady valuations in the private market still, but they've been fewer and further between. Uh, they're just some obvious culprits that everyone wants in and everyone, all the others are just second tier. Yeah, you know, the big, I mean, the biggest in the last couple of years is SpaceX. Uh, SpaceX has literally and figuratively defied gravity. You know, in 2022, when, when most stocks were down, SpaceX was continuing to rise. Uh, and we see a tender being announced in SpaceX to the tune of about another $750 million at a $180 billion valuation. Um, so SpaceX has has been our hottest stock on our platform for several years now and continues to be, uh, even though the valuation has reached a very high level. I think it's something like 20 times, you know, projected 2023 revenues. So, um, you know, SpaceX has been very hot. Anything AI, frankly, um, you know, since ChatGPT launched, uh, you know, whether it's Anthropic, we just saw Anthropic announce a valuation uh, around in, at the end of December. Uh, we, we see, you know, Elon Musk himself has XAI, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing is coming out at a 30 billion valuation. Um, so AI companies are, are definitely hot across the board, you know, clearly led by OpenAI. But 
I, I think that's where and we saw the rise of NVIDIA in the public markets and we see the numbers they're putting up. There's clearly a lot of demand uh, you know, for AI capabilities. And so companies that have real AI right. businesses, real technology are seeing a lot of demand. The, the volume of demands there, but specifically, where is it coming from? Institutionals, high net worth individuals, who's buying? It's all of the above. I mean, clearly the, led by the institutions who have, you know, the larger pockets of capital. So definitely a strong, strong demand from institutional capital. But it goes to family offices. It goes to high net worth individuals. I think there's a fear of missing out right now. Um, and I think it's also, frankly, there's a vanity play. I think people like to say they own an AI company. Um, and, you know, I think there's there's still a little bit to be desired in terms of properly valuing these businesses because the revenues are still very light. And so a lot of it's based on the prospects and hopes for the future. And, and you know, we'll see what happens if growth starts to normalize in some of these companies. But right now, the demand is very insatiable across the board. For what it's worth, Greg, that SpaceX tender at $180 billion, I don't think they announced it. I think Katie Roof and I reported it on December 12th. But I appreciate the analysis. <laughs> Greg Martin, co-founder. I, I, co -founder. Should, I should have given you proper credit for that. That was very no, no, good, all good Oh, he'll force we, it we out really, of you. Don't you worry. <laughs> we appreciate the analysis. Greg Martin, founder and managing director of Rainmaker Securities. Thank you. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, one AI-powered search engine is aiming to take on the likes of Google and ChatGPT. We're going to talk to the CEO of Perplexity. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
Perplexity says its AI-powered conversational search engine has the chops to take on the likes of Google and ChatGPT. And backers like Jeff Bezos and NVIDIA agree the startups just raised $73.6 million in a Series B round. Here to tell us more is Aravind Srinivas, CEO of Perplexity. Uh, interesting backers, interesting competition. Let's just start with the technology. What is it that's unique about either your model or, or, or just the tool, the generative AI tool? Yeah, so thank you for having me here. So Perplexity is an AI-powered conversational answer engine. It's not a search engine. Uh, so you ask a qu query, you ask a question, it just directly gives you the answer. The main difference from other chatbots like ChatGPT is that you always get the sources. So it only says what exists on the web already, and it clearly tells the user where every part of the answer, where is it coming from on the web. One of the backers or investors is NVIDIA, but are they also supporting you in compute? Did you get access to an H100 cluster, for example? So NVIDIA is an investor in us strategically, where we partner with them to work on frameworks for training and inference. But we have all our compute cluster on other hyperscalers like AWS. Competition. I get that the uniqueness is that the source is clearly labeled, but you're directly taking on ChatGPT, BARD. Mm -hmm. Is the sourcing enough to sort of differentiate in that market? Yeah, so our perspective is that AI chatbots are going to be uh, a, a wide variety. There's going to be a chatbot for you to go and brainstorm new ideas and interact with it to like ask for ideas for birthday presents or generate essays or write poems. There's going to be character AI like chatbots where you're chatting with personalities. But there has to be one single chatbot which you rely on for accurate, live, correct information on the web. And that market is there for the taking and we want to go for that. And 10 million people on a monthly basis do. I'm interested in your desire to go out and build this, Arvin, because you were at OpenAI as a researcher. You've been working with DeepMind. Why did you feel that something new was necessary to be created? I always wanted to try an entrepreneurial journey. So it was not meant to go and create a company for search. We initially started off as just to brainstorm and create products using the large language models as an you know, upcoming technology. Much before it was even called generative AI, it was just that we stumbled on this amazing idea of combining large language models and web search together in the form of a new product called Perplexity. So you raise this money. Is that to be put towards R&D, compute power? Is it a little bit of marketing? Because I'm kind of interested in how you got into the hands of 10 million people. Yeah, so we've really been uh, fortunate to have completely organic growth. We haven't paid for any of these users. We obviously announce all our product features on Twitter, and like people follow us there and like, get to know about us, and there's a lot of word of mouth growth for us. But our spend is largely going to be on scaling adoption and usage, and that's going to be spent more on compute resources, as you point uh, out. Caroline and I have experienced some of that word of mouth about perplexity. Here's the thing. The story with OpenAI was about the push to commercialize. Do you feel, as a, as a founder and leader of that company, that pressure? Well, honestly, I think people just want progress, and progress can be reflected in terms of clear user growth and adoption and not just through revenue. So as you get more and more users, there's always going to be plenty of opportunities for you to monetize, either through subscriptions or other forms of monetization. 
And therefore, right now, all our investors are pretty aligned with this, that uh, we actually want to scale more in terms of getting, like, growing a larger user base. Aravind Trinivas, CEO of Perplexity. Great to have you here in the studio, San Francisco. Thank you for your time. Caro. Yeah, you. and we finish up on a topic that we love to lace throughout the show, whether it's 2023 or 2024, all things AI, all things about the desire to get into the secondary market, the primary market of these companies and the valuations. It just goes on to this ongoing narrative. And for now, it feels like that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Yeah, much of the same themes of last year continuing into 2024, but that's not a bad thing. Recap the show on our podcast. Thanks to everyone that has tuned in. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on iHeart, and of course, we're uploading everything to the Bloomberg platforms. Next week is a big one. I'm off to Vegas. Vegas, baby, CES. Will I survive? Tune in to find out, Caroline, from San Francisco. And a small thing called a spot Bitcoin ETF as well. Based on prior experiences, this is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.